if the Supreme Court makes up a new right for which there is not historical evidence, then I think it has exceeded its powers under the Constitution. Hey everyone, this is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this Patreon-only episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about the Ninth Amendment. That's the one that says citizens have rights that extend beyond what is enumerated in the Bill of Rights. The Ninth Amendment was largely ignored until the 1960s, when it became important in the development of the right to privacy and its relationship to reproductive rights. That gave conservatives pause, and their response, by and large, has been to pretend the Ninth Amendment just doesn't exist. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have tainted the legacy of our Constitution, the way that weird anti-vax shit has tainted the legacy of Aaron Rodgers. Mm. <laughs> I'm Peter. <laughs> yes. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. Hi, hello. <laughs> you know, I had resisted Aaron Rodgers' hate for a long time. I really liked him. He's so much fun to watch. But uh, this year, man, yeah, I was happy to see him lose in the playoffs. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Been... Very fun for natural haters such as myself, uh, Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers going down in one weekend. Mm. It's been good. It's been good. Yeah. Young POC quarterback succeeding. Also something I support. That's right. Love to see it. We love to see it. Somewhat related to my being a Chiefs fan. Somewhat. Speaking of uh, washed up has-beens passing the torch to talented young people of color. Yes. Yes. What a gorgeous transition. What might this be about, Michael? Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer has finally announced his retirement Mm -hmm. effective at the end of this term upon confirmation of his successor which Joe Biden has promised will be a black woman. It's very exciting to know that he will not be replaced by Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or whoever. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to get somebody pretty great, probably Ketanji Brown-Jackson. But there's a whole list of fantastic candidates, every one of them worth being excited about. Yeah. And it's making conservatives very mad because oh, Biden God. promised a black woman. And obviously that's racism. And it's the only kind of racism. Oh, yes. <laughs> racism is when you commit to correcting historical wrongs perpetrated <laughs> against certain demographics. That's right. That's what racism is. The definition does not go beyond that. That's right. If we've learned nothing from the crazy critical race theory debates over the past couple of months. It's that racism is making white people feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. That is the gravest harm you can do. Not only not getting a Supreme Court seat, but knowing you were never in the running. Man. Whoa. Yeah. God. It's brutal. It's tough. Anyway, if we have anyone who's like an enterprising young writer out there, write a book about the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. And it'll be banned in the next five years. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The way things are going. But look, I don't think we have a ton more to say about the Breyer retirement. It's good. And we did it. We are the ones who are That's responsible. Right. Five to four. Of course. Yeah, I do want to say that we're taking credit. This is our doing. Absolutely. We've been doing this podcast for two years. Did anyone say the Supreme Court sucks before that? No. 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 Did anyone else put a surfing flamingo on a shirt that says Stephen Breyer retire bitch? No. Absolutely no. not. No one did that. Cowards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were all 
at best, publishing op-eds that were like, hey, Stephen, um, maybe you should think about stepping down. That wasn't our approach. We said, retire, bitch. <laughs> and one of our listeners sent a mug <laughs> that said, Stephen Breyer, retire, bitch, on it to his office. That's right. I don't see how we're not responsible. Right. It just makes logical sense. There's no other explanation. I will be accepting all of the accolades. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Biden, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you want to award us medals, that makes sense. And to the extent that this makes society better in any way, we did that. No one else. For sure. That's right. All right. To the episode. Today, we are talking about the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution. This is a very special episode. We've never talked about the Constitution before. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not so specifically. Uh, the Ninth Amendment says, and I quote, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Mm. So what does that mean? In simple terms, it means that the individual rights outlined in the Constitution are not a comprehensive list. Other rights can and do exist, and if you take this amendment seriously, are just as important and fundamental as the rights enumerated explicitly in the Constitution. Naturally, this is a big deal, right? The implication that there are protected rights outside of those specified in the Constitution is a pretty dramatic one, and especially disconcerting to conservatives who were already upset that there were any rights to begin with. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, usually Rhiannon does the history and background. We've sometimes received criticism that we are a sexist podcast for making her do that every time. Yeah, they force me to. Yeah. Let me be clear. We have Rhiannon do the background because she brings a thoughtful and empathetic voice to the facts of these cases and concepts. That doesn't make us a sexist podcast. Uh, what makes us a sexist podcast is the steadfast belief that men are the superior gender uh, that all of us hold. There you go. But regardless, I am nothing if not incredibly receptive to constructive criticism. Uh, so I'll do the background today um, and then Rhiannon will do the next 100 episodes, <laughs> if that's OK with you guys. Thank you so much for your sacrifice. I really appreciate this allyship. This is what allyship is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and a somewhat serious disclaimer here. We're not trying to deep dive into the Ninth Amendment scholarship. You know, we're trying to give a basic overview of the Ninth Amendment. So if you complain to us about how we didn't get deep enough into like Randy Barnett's theory of the Ninth Amendment or right. whatever. We're going to beat you to death. Yeah. <laughs> Just please fuck off. Yeah. Specifically, Randy <laughs> Barnett never, ever mentioned his name to us as right. anyone other than someone who should be ridiculed. Exactly. Yeah. So the genesis of the Ninth Amendment is pretty widely agreed upon. During the drafting of the Constitution, Federalists and Anti-Federalists were arguing about what should be included. You remember Social studies, right? Yeah, we covered that. The Anti-Federalists wanted to include a specific list of rights, a Bill of Rights enshrined in the Constitution. The Federalists were opposed on the basis that they felt that specifying certain rights would result in other rights not specified being ignored. So James Madison comes up with a compromise. He says, OK, we'll include a Bill of Rights, but we will also include a provision that explicitly says that the enumeration of rights does not imply that people don't retain other rights and that those rights aren't equally important. That's ultimately what happens. His proposal becomes the Ninth Amendment, which is passed with the rest of the Bill of Rights in 1791. So 
The intent of the founders is fairly obvious. They wanted to make clear that there are rights besides those listed in the Constitution, and those rights are equally important. What's less obvious is where that leaves us. Uh, the Ninth Amendment says there are rights outside of what's listed in the Constitution, but it doesn't tell us what they are. Right. As a result, judges and scholars never really knew what to do with the Ninth Amendment. And for the first 150 plus years of American history, it was really just viewed primarily as an academic novelty. There were almost no mentions of the amendment in scholarship until well into the 20th century and almost none in judicial opinions until 1965, when the Supreme Court used it as part of the framework for developing a right to privacy in the Constitution, which Michael will discuss in more detail later and, you know, forms the backbone of what will become Roe v. Wade. That's right. Right. For several years after that case in 1965, scholars and judges spent some time digging into the implications of the Ninth Amendment, and you saw conservatives begin to carve out a more limited interpretation of the amendment, making various arguments that all circle around the basic idea that the Ninth Amendment should not be interpreted to expand upon the individual rights listed in the Constitution. Yeah. It is, to them, either functionally meaningless or close to it. That's how you know they're really dedicated to the text of the Constitution. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> they just decide. And the original understanding of it, because the layman on the street would read that and think, there are no other rights in the Constitution other than those listed. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> So let's talk the Ninth Amendment. So the first thing I want to tell you is about the Fifth Amendment, which makes sense. <laughs> the Fifth Amendment says that, amongst other things, no person should be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process. That is against the federal government and prevents the federal government from, you know, denying you these life, liberty, and property. Right. The Fourteenth Amendment says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. These are known as the due process clauses uh, that apply to both the states and the federal government. Right. This is also how the Bill of Rights has come to be enforced against the states because, you know, the First Amendment is a privilege and immunity of, you know, a U.S. citizen. And so that applies to the states, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And we've mentioned it was originally understood as just applying to the federal right. government. Right. So obviously, one thing this does is it guarantees that the government has to go through some sort of process before they do something like throw you in a cage or take your land to build a highway or rescind your social security benefits, right? Whether it's a trial by jury or a hearing before an administrative law judge, you're going to get some sort of due process. And that's called procedural due process. But so, you know, there's this other question, which is like, what's exactly meant by the word liberty, right? The liberty that's protected here. It's kind of a slippery word, right? Like it could mean just like your freedom of movement, right? Like the state can't throw you in a cage, but it could be something broader. Like if someone is dying from an incurable disease and they're in a lot of pain and they want to end their life and their doctor can't prescribe them, you know, like a heavy dose of opiates right. to end their life peacefully, I bet they feel like their liberty is being infringed upon. I think when gay people want to have sex and there were anti-sodomy laws, they felt like their liberty was being infringed upon. Right. Frank libertarians, when they have to get 
driver's licenses to drive on public thoroughfares, they feel like their liberty is being infringed upon. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or by age of consent laws. Yes, that's right. (laughs) God, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. but there's like obviously more to the word liberty than just your literal, you know, freedom to move around. Right, exactly. And, And so what's happened is in the last 70 years, or actually last 100 years, the court has read new freedoms into the Constitution via these clauses, the 14th and 5th Amendments, via these due process clauses saying that these new freedoms are encompassed in the liberty that's protected there, Uh, although they will sometimes call them liberty interests instead of fundamental rights. And so what they're doing sounds a lot like, you know, the Ninth Amendment, right? The explication of unenumerated rights under the Constitution. And that relationship was actually sort of made explicit in the 60s. Yeah, so there's this case in 1965 called Griswold v. Connecticut. There was this law on the books in Connecticut at the time that banned the use of contraception for everyone, even married couples. And like Michael said, the Supreme Court is looking at the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment and seeing that liberty is clearly protected by the Constitution, but obviously there's no definition of liberty, right? And there's also the First and the Fourth Amendments, which also seem to indicate that there are areas or like these zones of privacy where government intrusion should be prohibited. Bodily autonomy and personal dignity, every possible decision an individual can make over the course of their lives that should be free from government intrusion, those aren't mentioned or defined in the Constitution. And so Griswold is the first case where the Supreme Court is like, you know what? All of this protection of liberty has got to mean that people have a right to privacy. And not only that, but look, we have the Ninth Amendment that supports us in saying this also, in addition to the First Amendment, the Fourth, the Fifth, the Fourteenth, right? So Griswold is the first case that not only establishes a constitutional right to privacy, you know, an unenumerated right, but also it makes the connection between a right that is not enumerated in the Constitution and the Ninth Amendment. So the Ninth Amendment connection in Griswold is actually made most strongly in a concurrent written by Arthur Goldberg. And there's good language in there about the history of the Ninth Amendment and the importance of not reading out an amendment of the Constitution. And ultimately, that concurrence concludes that the Ninth Amendment, quote, lends strong support to the view that liberty protected by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments is not restricted to rights specifically mentioned in the Bill of Rights. That's right. And that concurrence, I think, is pretty important. You know, the two justices who signed on to it were William Brennan and Earl Warren, who I think are two of the most important liberal justices in modern history. You know, I think there's a lot of power to it. I don't think you can understand Griswold properly without taking that concurrence seriously. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The existence of the Ninth Amendment, the text of the Ninth Amendment, lends strong support to the view that the liberty protected by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments is not restricted to rights specifically mentioned in the First Eight Amendments. Mm -hmm. So that's where it's had like big impact, right? It also gets mentioned in Roe v. Wade. The district court in Roe v. Wade actually decided it under the Ninth Amendment. The Supreme Court decided it under the 14th Amendment, but says literally it doesn't really matter, right? right? They say, whether you believe it's from the 14th Amendment as we hold or the Ninth Amendment as the district court holds, like this right to privacy is real. It's been embedded in our society forever. And it's, you know, now it's an explicit part of our, our law. Right. 
And so that's like the main role it's had in our jurisprudence is propping up the 14th and 5th Amendment due process clauses. I kind of think it can stand on its own two feet. I don't see why it has to be a support amendment, right? Like a yeah. right. like a secondary amendment. There's no reason why it needs to just be replaced by this substantive due process analysis or uh, just used in support of it. The text of the amendment is clear. And the sort of analysis you do wouldn't be that different. It would look a lot like what they did in Griswold or Roe v. Wade or were doing in other cases in the 60s, looking at the relationship of the different constitutional rights and how they interact and what sort of relationship that implies between citizens and the state and how that affects other aspects of public life, right? They were doing this in all sorts of cases too. In Tehan v. United States, it was like the Fourth and First Amendments, I think. And uh, they called it the right to be let alone in Tehan. Oh, and then in Stanford v. State of Texas, was about like warrant requirements in, in the First Amendment. So they were doing this a lot. They were thinking seriously about what the Bill of Rights means, not as, you know, individual amendments, but in totality, right? Right. And how that impacts everyday person's life and, and what that means for what the government can't and can't do. And I think that's what Ninth Amendment analysis could and should look like. And I think that's why conservatives hate it. <laughs> right? Yeah. right? Yeah, you know? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think the Ninth Amendment gives almost like a framework for looking at the other amendments in that way. It's about looking at the Bill of Rights as a whole. The Ninth Amendment is a part of the Bill of Rights that says, look, all the rights that the people retain are not listed here, right? Yeah. It says it right there. And that sort of directs in the 60s and early 70s, that sort of directed some more liberal judges to take a more nuanced view, to take a more holistic view, right? To say, look, the Ninth Amendment says this clearly. There are other rights that are protected. And we can also derive that idea from these other amendments as well. The Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment talk about liberty. The First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, those are talking about rights that individuals have against the government. And so, this naturally spooks conservatives. Yes. Once, <laughs> once judges started talking about, oh, hey, there's this whole other amendment here. There's this Ninth Amendment that says very clearly there are other rights that are not enumerated in the Constitution. Conservatives, just like we've talked about over and over and over again on this podcast, conservatives start to fashion an academic and a judicial reaction to that idea, basically to squash it out, to stop that interpretation of an expansive Ninth Amendment and an expansive Constitution. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very scary for a whole amendment to just come out and say that, like, people have a ton of rights and these rights couldn't even <laughs> yeah. be listed here if we tried. Yeah, yeah. They don't like that. Yeah. So because the language of the amendment is vague and because it implies an expansive view of rights retained by people, not by states, it poses a sort of glaring obstacle in how modern conservatives insist on construing the Constitution. You know, the Ninth Amendment, I think, is a really good example of the limitations of reactionary constitutional interpretation like originalism because it shows how intellectually dishonest a framework this is. Turning to what sort of 
modern conservatives have said about the Ninth Amendment and their really just writing out of the Ninth Amendment from the Constitution. In our episode about Robert Bork and his failed nomination to the Supreme Court, we discussed that he referred to the Ninth Amendment during those confirmation hearings as an inkblot on the Constitution and that it should be read as such, that it should be read as an inkblot. You know, there's actually a little more to the exchange that I think is illuminating for how originalists think about the Ninth Amendment and how results-oriented their constitutional interpretation is to the point where they basically just read out this entire amendment of the Bill of Rights. Again, like you said, Michael, when they are purported textualists who care about what the text says, right? Right. So the actual answer that Robert Bork gives, he says, I don't think you can use the Ninth Amendment unless you know something of what it means. For example, if you had an amendment that says Congress shall make no, and there's an inkblot, and you, don't, you can't read the rest of it. That's the only copy you have. I don't think the court can make up what might be under the inkblot. So Bork's argument here is that the language is so vague, the language of the Ninth Amendment is so vague, and there isn't enough historical evidence about what the Ninth Amendment was intended to mean or what it did mean to the public at the time of ratification, that it's literally unusable. You have to treat it as if it's an inkblot, <laughs> as if there's no way to read the words at all. Yeah. This is plainly patently absurd and hypocritical. Originalists will act like historical linguists. They'll act like scientists of the mm-hmm. 1700s and they'll do shit like read an individual right to bear arms into the Second Amendment like 200 years after the fact just because right. they feel like it. But but they don't like what would result from serious treatment of the Ninth Amendment. So they say that this investigation is impossible. Right. Right. Yeah. The inkblot metaphor is phenomenal for how bad it is coming out of like a supposedly incredible mind. Yeah. Robert Bork. Yeah. Genius textualist. Yeah. Like his whole point is that like, well, you can't see what's beneath it. It's like an inkblot and therefore we'll never know. But an inkblot is a mistake, right? Like (laughs) someone accidentally spilled some ink or something. Right. Right. That's not that's not this. This is very clear words written out for you and you are very scared of the implications and feel that they are a little too uncertain for you to dive into and therefore you're not going to. That's right. That's very different than an inkblot. Right. Yeah. Yeah, No, his idea that like, oh, the inkblot's obscuring the actual whatever, like the real right is underneath. But the whole fucking point of the amendment is that they could never possibly enumerate every single right. Right. Yeah. That's right. the whole, that's what it says. That's what it means. That's what's like obviously its point. It's how it's easily understood now and how I'm sure it was understood by the layperson reading it in 1795 or whenever. Right. Undeniable. And he's like, oh, the fact that it's not specific is why it's unenforceable, but it's purposefully unspecific. The whole yeah. point right. is right. that you could never be sufficiently thorough if you were specific, right? That's the point. Exactly, exactly. That's the point of the Ninth Amendment. And uh, he just doesn't like that, right? Right, right. Right. Antonin Scalia also weighed in on the Ninth Amendment in sort of a similar way. He said, quote, the Constitution's refusal to deny or disparage other rights is far removed from affirming any one of them (laughs) and even further removed from authorizing judges to identify what they might be and to enforce the judges list against laws duly enacted by the people, end quote. Mm. So his argument is essentially that 
we can't rely on judges to interpret the amendment and figure out what the unenumerated rights are, and therefore we must ignore it. <laughs> Look, I, you can get sort of technical here, right? Like, these guys are supposedly textualists. There are rules of textual interpretation that say that you have to read things to give them force, right? Right. Right. And like, you know, the rule against surplusage and all that shit. There are many canons of interpretation that say that in some form or another, that if something is written out, your interpretation of the document, in this case, the Constitution, should be designed to give those words force. You can't render words meaningless. Right. But stepping outside that textualist bullshit, like the Ninth Amendment is a clear statement that the entire approach of centering our constitutional analysis on strictly reading the listed rights is a misfire. Right. And I think the basic argument that I'd make is that the Constitution is essentially a series of commands to the government, right? Can't infringe on speech, can't infringe on the right to bear arms, you can't do unreasonable searches and seizures. Right. Whatever. Every amendment creates an obligation on the part of the government. So it makes sense to view the Ninth Amendment in the same regard. It creates an obligation for the government to recognize rights that are not specified in the Constitution. And I think that really upends how conservatives view the law, because since the mid-century, they've been arguing that we need to eliminate judicial discretion in interpreting the Constitution. But here you have an amendment that requires judicial discretion to give it any meaning. And yeah. more than that, really requires judges to think normatively and even creatively about what additional rights should be treated as protected. So that's more than just something conservatives don't like. It directly undermines their entire project of constitutional interpretation. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And just another couple of examples of modern justices and their treatment of the Ninth Amendment. You know, there actually isn't a lot that the justices have said publicly about the Ninth Amendment just because there aren't cases that come up under the Ninth Amendment. I mean, this conservative interpretation, this backfire after, you know, the 60s and early 70s really has read out the Ninth Amendment from the Constitution. And so mm -hmm. the justices aren't called on to comment on it very often, except during confirmation hearings. So Gorsuch is an example here. Having learned the lesson from the public backlash of the Bork hearings and that, you know, his nomination failed, uh, modern conservatives who want to be the little Scalia juniors aren't going to go quite so far as Bork in saying outright that they're just like reading out an amendment of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So an example is during Gorsuch's confirmation hearings, Senator Ben Sass asked him, Can we talk a little bit about the Ninth Amendment? Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. It reads, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. What does that mean? Well, Senator, I think it, it means what it says. Yeah, me too, bitch. Clever little boy. Thanks a lot, <laughs> sassy pants. Thank you so much, Neil. So, you know, note that he's not saying anything here. He's happy right. for the Ninth Amendment to continue not meaning anything in modern constitutional jurisprudence. He just isn't quite so lacking, like, in self-awareness that he'll say outright that one of the amendments in the Bill of Rights can just be ignored because we don't like it the way Bork did. Yeah, yeah. There's also Thomas didn't I don't think they pressed him on the Ninth Amendment specifically too much at his confirmation hearings, but they did press him about natural rights. Uh, he's a proponent of natural rights, which is sort of like originalism for the Magna Carta. Uh, right. If I had to describe it. Right. Uh -huh. It's like it's the idea that there are like fundamental God given rights. Right. They come literally from God. Right. Right. And they're the underpinnings of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, all that shit. And that those rights should to some degree inform our understanding of the Constitution. But he has not taken that to uh, 
place where he says, well, okay, yeah, that we should carry those natural rights into the Ninth Amendment. And thank God, because God knows what the fuck he would do with that. (laughs) (laughs) So I do want to talk a little bit about like original intent. I find this the Ninth Amendment stuff really telling because for decades, legal conservative rhetoric has been designed to present themselves as the only true adherents to the Constitution. Right. right? Yes. They call themselves strict constructionists or constitutional conservatives or whatever. And here they are just openly ignoring an entire fucking amendment. The Constitution to the conservative base is sort of like the flag, right? It's not like predicated in any real principles as much as it's just a symbol that they can project their beliefs onto. Mm-hmm. So when originalism first started developing, it was focused on the original intent of the founders. If you read early originalist scholarship from like the 70s and early 80s, it pretty consistently revolves around the idea of what the founders intended. Over the course of the 80s, Antonin Scalia and some of his acolytes convinced everyone that the real goal should be the original understanding of the Constitution, meaning how the public understood it. Mm -hmm. Note that this does a couple of things. First, it allows them to ignore a lot of the progressive instincts of the founders, which, you know, the founders were progressive for their time and in some regards progressive for our time. So they replace those progressive instincts with the much less progressive instincts of a bunch of barely literate farmers. Right. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Second, it allows them to ignore a lot of fairly clear writings like the Federalist Papers that outline the Constitution's intent in favor of a much vaguer standard that is subject to their own preconceptions and manipulations. Right. The guy who wrote this said X, but the third definition in Webster's 1793 (laughs) edition of this word means why. Mm -hmm. So I think probably why. We got to go with why. We got to go with why. (laughs) Yeah. James Madison said that there are a bunch of unenumerated rights that the government must respect. But a guy who lost three of his limbs to gangrene in the span of two weeks in 1792 would not be so short. So how do we know? How do we know what the answer is? This guy, he's not literate, but if somebody read him the Ninth Amendment, he might have trouble following like there's like maybe a double negative in there or something. He might get confused. So so we can't give it any force. <laughs> Long story short. So, you know, the original intent of the Ninth Amendment is like quite clear. It is identifying an unenumerated class of rights that are within the scope of the Constitution or at the very least to be respected just as much as the enumerated rights. Right. Right. Conservatives just can't abide that. Yeah. Their disdain for the breadth of rights that this amendment might protect is really remarkable. It's brought them to a point where most of the conservative legal movement advocates for functionally ignoring an entire amendment to the Constitution. And if that doesn't out them as ideologues rather than the true heirs of the Constitution or whatever, I don't know what does. And, you know, there are some times on our podcast where we'll say, like, this is about ideology and we are on the left. And that is why we stand by an interpretation of the law that favors the left, because we admit that this is about ideology and that those are our ends. Yeah. This is a situation, though, where we are also as close to objectively correct as you could possibly be. (laughs) Because (laughs) we're the ones saying there's an amendment to the Constitution here and you should read it and try to do what it says to the best of your ability. And they're like, oh, no, I don't think so, buddy. We're at least acknowledging the existence of one of the 10 amendments. Right. 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 You know, it's interesting because like there's a case, it's not a Ninth Amendment case, but there's a case that everybody hates left and right. And that's Lochner. Mm -hmm. And Lochner 
was a case of unenumerated rights. And the left hates it because it was the court like knocking down progressive economic regulation, right? And the right hates it because it was the court just making up shit, just making up right. a right to contract, you know? And right. Right. this is like created like unfortunately fertile ground for conservatives to sort of argue against the enumeration of unenumerated rights in a way that's appealing to liberal legal academics, right? Like you don't want another Lochner, do you? Right. That sort of thing. And it creates like a hook for conservative propaganda about the way to read the Constitution to take hold. And I think it's been very effective. I think the Lochner era is very disparaged and discredited in legal circles. And I don't think for liberal law professors, it's always for the right reasons, right? I think a lot of them have internalized this idea that like, you know, looking for unenumerated rights or thinking seriously about rights outside those listed in the Bill of Rights is a mistake, right? That it's judicial overstepping and it's something to be avoided. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a shame. I think it's wrong. First of all, I think it's just straight not consistent with the text and purpose and original understanding, all three, the real trifecta of the Constitution, but also just on the merits. Like, I think it's I think it would be good for the left to think more seriously about what we could do with the Ninth Amendment specifically, but generally speaking, unenumerated rights. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of like liberal professors who speak to the fear of the Lochner era or something like it. You know, mm-hmm. what if conservatives you know, use the idea of unenumerated rights to start adding rights that are beneficial to conservatives. Yeah. And yes, like that is, of course, not just a valid concern, but in, to some extent, an inevitability. Mm-hmm. But the point is that a strict construction limiting us to an interpretation that relies only on the specified rights in the Constitution, that will always be conservative, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the prospect that is afforded us by the Ninth Amendment is something that at least has potential to transform how we conceptualize civil rights. That might sometimes be conservative, but it will not always be conservative. It is not inherently conservative in a way that strict construction is. I also have seen absolutely no evidence that ignoring the Ninth Amendment and ignoring substantive due process and all that stuff has at all restrained the conservatives from like enforcing their ideology. I mean, look where it's gotten us. Yeah. Right. Nothing but else, right? I mean, yeah. look, one thing we haven't really discussed and that we probably should is the idea promulgated by the court in Griswold v. Connecticut is what's called the penumbra theory of rights, right? They looked at the rights afforded us in the Constitution explicitly, and they said a lot of these sort of ring of privacy. Right. right. That's why in the penumbra you can see that there's a right to privacy. It's hard to overstate how widely disparaged that is Mm -hmm. in law schools. And the court has moved away from it entirely. Uh, And it was taught to me as if it was basically objectively wrong. Yeah. Something you you should roll your eyes at. But I actually think it's a very reasonable way to interpret the Ninth Amendment. You're not making up new rights per se. You're using the existing rights to establish a framework for the types of rights that the Constitution implicitly protects. That's not stupid or weird, nor is it any more, in my view, susceptible to the whims of individual judges than whatever purportedly formalistic bullshit the conservatives have pieced together to serve their political interests for the last 50 years, right? And if the left is concerned about anything, 
It should be how moving away from this and accepting the conservative framing has accomplished absolutely nothing. Exactly. Right. And we are now sitting in a world where the formalists completely dominate the conversation and the Ninth Amendment is sitting there out in the cold. All of your civil rights are just like sitting there written in the Constitution implicitly and no one's doing anything about it. Right. Yeah. You know, the reasoning, the penumbras, right, that that sort of language and that reasoning has become, yeah, like disparaged and oftentimes the butt of jokes in legal circles. It's because it's so powerful. Right. I think it's a recognition from conservatives that like if lawyers and judges think this way. Right. That's a huge challenge to them. Right. That's a problem for them. Exactly. And liberal academics are such dupes that they they fucking fell for it. Right. They've actually bought this shit. But it makes absolutely perfect sense that if you want to understand, if you want to know, if you want to think clearly about what sorts of rights are unenumerated, but still protected by the Constitution, that the first fucking place you'd look would be the enumerated rights and to think Mm -hmm. sort of holistically about how they interact and how they create, for lack of a better word, a relationship between the citizen and the state. Exactly. And the nature of that relationship, right? And I think the answer is that it creates like a small L libertarian relationship where the government generally stays out of your shit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's been called a lot of different things, a right to privacy, a right to be let alone, a respect for human dignity and conscience are all ways this has been described in the pages of the Supreme Court. But whatever it is, it's pretty broad and it's a way of thinking about new laws and ways to protect against reactionary and fascist shit, you know? Yeah. Like we've talked a lot about like the dangers of what's coming up, but like, I don't know, man, drone surveillance that seems to fundamentally alter our relationship, right, with the government. Mm-hmm. And I think right. that's something that could easily, you could say, look, this shit is not at all consonant with how we've thought about our government for 250 years. Right. That fits perfectly into this. But libs are, like, afraid of this. You know, like, when we're invited to talk to law students, the three of us, you know, we often get this question about, like, if you could change anything about the Constitution, what would you change? Or if you could write your own amendment, what would it be? And of course, like, there's a lot left to be desired by a Constitution that was written by slave-owning white men in the 1700s. Why does it matter that they were white, Re? <laughs> Uh, I love your colorblindness, Peter. The Constitution is far from a perfect document, okay? But in terms of an amendment that should be added, I'm always like, we already have the ninth. Like, it's right there. It literally says this is a non-exhaustive list, right? The right to privacy, to bodily autonomy, to dignity. It's right there if you want it to be. And I think this is one area, the Ninth Amendment is, that shows so profoundly how formalistic thinking about the law, about the Constitution, has wrecked the law and legal thinking. And the argument that, like, Well, no one ever used the Ninth Amendment. It wasn't ever referenced by the Supreme Court in a serious way until the 1960s. You know, you just you can't just make up what it means. I don't buy it. That means jack shit to me. Like the First Amendment didn't mean shit until like 1910. Yeah. A billion years after it was written. (laughs) There wasn't an individual right to bear arms in the Constitution until 2008 when Antonin Scalia said so. Right. Yeah. So the Ninth Amendment is there. It must mean something. Make meaning of it. That's right. Do it. 
liberal law professors are like scared of this because they're scared of being the butts of jokes. They're scared of being tagged as activists. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it's like impoverished liberal academia and a liberal judicial agenda is like hollow. Yeah. There's just not that much there. I mean, it's so weak that three morons with absolutely no academic experience have created the most successful Supreme Court podcast (laughs) in the country. (laughs) Yeah. That's how bad things are. Right. I mean, we, you know, we talked to a fucking senator and I talked to him about the lack of a liberal legal agenda. And his response was like, I think that shows we're the good guys. He's a former lawyer. (laughs) That's the sort of brainworms that the legal left has right now. It's like, yeah. yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that the conservatives have proffered this bad faith argument about how they process the law and the Constitution. And any moron can see that they're lying either to themselves or to you. And it does not matter which. And liberal academics have just not been able to see through the facade. Yeah. Because it's a facade that's so appealing to them. The idea that the law is like a science Mm -hmm. and you can pull real objective solutions out of it. That is so fundamentally appealing to these fucking nerds that they are essentially ignoring the part of their brain that's responsible for a fight or flight response. Yeah. You know, the the conservative approach to the Ninth Amendment is like one of the Wilson guys. Is it Luke Wilson? Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson in the Royal Tannenbaums, right? Everyone knows Custer died at Little Bighorn. Well, what this academic paper supposes is what if he didn't, right? Like that's, <laughs> yeah. that is their approach to the Ninth Amendment. And liberal law professors are like, ooh, right. that is an interesting thought. Oh, shit. What if they got us? Fuck. Yeah. I have to yeah. take yeah. that seriously. Yeah. Right. That's an idea I need to take seriously and in good faith. And actually, if I'm like, no, Custer did die a little bighorn. I am the joke here. I am right. the laughing stock, right? Like, what the fuck is that? Like, <laughs> right. I mean, to take a quick step back so that it's clear, I I want to say like the formulation in Griswold is in my mind a good, if not a great formulation of the Ninth Amendment and how it should be interpreted and how it should be used in jurisprudence. And I think that the conservative complaint about doing that is, well, we can't leave this to the whims of judges. And I think the only real response you need to that is the Constitution tells you to, right? Right. The Constitution is giving you a broad statement about these unspecified rights that the government must protect. James Madison knew that it was vague. He knew that it was broad. The Constitution is telling you to interpret it. And there's no way to interpret it other than by doing so using broad standards. And therefore, that is what you should do. I think that's simple enough. And all of the conservative hand-wringing about this is genuinely just reactionary bullshit that is predicated entirely on the fact that it was used to do liberal stuff in the 1960s. Exactly. If the first use of the Ninth Amendment was to legalize slaveholding, conservatives would be defending it to this day. (laughs) You know, I mean... Yeah, now that they have a supermajority, the Ninth Amendment might come back in vogue for bullshit economic rights, right? Like they're sure. the yeah. contract or whatever. Like I wouldn't be surprised if they have a come to Jesus mode. Right, all of a sudden, yeah. Hey, the constitution says what it says, you know? Right. 
Yeah. Well, we'll see what liberal law professors have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Sir, I believe you are violating the principles. I've analyzed the historical record and the right you've identified, I don't think is firmly established in our history and tradition and therefore should not be recognized. You got him. As they dump him into the mass grave. (laughs) Exactly. You you nailed him to the wall there, dude. Good good job. All right. I feel like we're done. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next week, parents involved in community schools, the Seattle School District number one uh, case about racism. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. I think technically the holding of of the case is that racism is over. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. Brought to you by John Roberts. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at 54pod subscribe to our patreon patreon.com slash 54pod all spelled out access to premium episodes special events our private slack all sorts of shit we'll see you next week bye-bye bye five to four is presented by prologue projects this episode was produced by rachel ward with editorial support from leon nafok and andrew parsons Our production manager is Persia Verlaine. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. By, like, maybe (laughs) an administrator. Maybe by an (laughs) administrator. God damn it. Maybe by an administrative law. Charlie, I'm going to fucking kick you out of this room. He does not like the social security thing. Oh, my God. All right. I need I need a moment here. One second. What? What is your problem?